It is Wednesday, May 11th, and this is People Every Day. Hi, everyone. It's Janine Rubenstein. I am very happy to be here with you today, this good old hump day. Lots to get to, so let's just jump right in to what's been bubbling up out there. Selling Sunset's Chriselle Staus has been all over my timeline lately, and it seems like she can't stop talking about how happy she is to be with her partner, G Flip. Last week, we learned that the two have already moved in together. On Monday, photos circulated of Chriselle giving the Australian singer a tattoo on their leg. Yes, a real tattoo, and it read, F Houses Do Ink. I don't know. <laughs> and Staus is now hoping her new relationship will help fans better understand different gender identities. Yesterday, the Netflix star shared a video on Instagram to address comments she's received from followers and fans about her relationship and feelings toward G Flip. But for me, I am attracted to masculine energy and I don't really care what the physical form is. And with G, um, you know, they identify as non-binary and so their pronouns are they, them. And everyone is different, but for them, they really feel like they are a mix and they identify, you know, um, on, on both sides of male, female. She looks very happy and sincere in the video and in all of the photos I've seen of the two of them together, which is really all that matters, right? Wishing my best to them both. Rapper Gunna was arrested in Atlanta yesterday. The 28-year-old rapper and rumored love interest of singer Chloe Bailey is accused of conspiracy to violate the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, better known as RICO. On Sunday, the 88-page indictment was filed in Fulton County Superior Court, naming 28 individuals in a group called Young Slime Life or Young Stoner Life, YSL, who allegedly, quote, conspired to associate with others for the common purposes of illegally obtaining money and property through a pattern of racketeering activity. What's really interesting is that there are reports that court documents cite lyrics from multiple music videos as evidence. Gunna's arrest came two days after fellow rapper Young Thug was arrested for his alleged role in the 28-person racketeering ring. People has reached out and is still awaiting a response from the representatives of Young Thug and Gunna. We will definitely be keeping tabs on this one. And now, moving on to Selma Blair. The actress has a deeply personal new memoir out next week, and People has the exclusive. For this week's People cover, actress Selma Blair sat down with us to talk about her new memoir, Mean Baby, and her decades-long struggle with alcohol addiction and trauma. Selma has been pretty open about past struggles since her diagnosis with multiple sclerosis in October of 2018, but she's sharing even more about her journey in Mean Baby. And joining me now to discuss her interview and the exclusive excerpt we got from Selma's memoir is People writer Kara Warner. Hey, Kara. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, just a heads up, everyone who's listening will be talking about sexual assault and alcoholism, so please listen at your own discretion. But Kara, during her interview, the Cruel Intentions star talked about her past addiction. Let's take a listen to what she said to you there. I don't know if I would have survived childhood without alcoholism. That's why it's such a problem for a lot of people. You know, it really is a huge comfort, a huge relief in the beginning, maybe even the first few years for me, because I did start really young with that as a kind of comfort, as my coping mechanism. She really just is so honest and open about 
starting to drink alcohol at age seven. And that continued until 2016. She's always been honest since she, you know, has been more open about having MS. And she's been very open and honest about ups and downs on social media. But this book, she reveals something that she had sort of hidden from everyone. She says that some close to her knew that she had issues with alcohol, but that very few people knew she was an alcoholic because she hid it so well. She's actually a beautiful writer. She writes about her struggle and her unhappiness and trying to cope with it and and why she drank. I think it's really powerful because she is owning up to a lot of addiction, a lot of decades of shame, and just sort of has moved to a place where she can accept it herself. And if she's sharing this with the world, she's hoping that it might help other people that are in a similar situation. Seven. Wow. Take me into that first experience that she talks about with alcohol. She was seven years old and she was taking little sips of wine during Passover dinner and she describes feeling a wonderful warmth. And first she mistakes it as the power of God, right? Like filling her up during this sort of religious holiday, which is wonderful. And then she sort of realizes that the light and warmth she's feeling is from the alcohol. And she just, from there, just keeps drinking for decades. And she never really drank to get drunk. She was kind of an unhappy, really pensive child. She felt things really deeply. And she found alcohol was like a little bit of an escape. And she found relief from, from just having, you know, little sips of whatever was in the house. And she says that her family didn't really notice because she was very secretive about it. It was also tough to read about her experiences with sexual assault. So take us into a little bit of what she decided to share. She was 13 or 14. She went to a private boarding school for high school. And she says early on in the book that she didn't connect with her father. She didn't really have strong male role models in her life. So when she went to this high school, she connected with one of the deans there who really tried to help her because she leapt from sort of elementary school to a prestigious high school and didn't feel like she was making grades that she wanted. So she required like a little extra tutoring. And this dean reached out, took her under his wing. She trusted him completely. They met in his office all the time because he was really trying to counsel her and, and help her succeed at the school. So she writes about an incident the day before winter break, her freshman year, where she was in his office like she always is. And they were just exchanging gifts, saying goodbye before Christmas. They hugged and they, the embrace just lasted too long. And that then he slowly assaulted her. She didn't know how to react. So she just sort of ran away and kind of only told one or two people. Goodness gracious. Did she say anything about how she's been able to stay sober considering everything else she's been through in recent years with the multiple sclerosis diagnosis and all of that? She never drank when she was working. She never drank when she was acting. She never drank around her son. But there was an incident in 2016 where she was on vacation with her son and her ex where she was feeling the intense symptoms of her MS, but it was undiagnosed. And so she was trying to self-medicate the pain away and combined some binge drinking on that trip and then on the way home with some over-the-counter medicine. And anyway, it resulted in sort of a pretty painful public breakdown, humiliation. That moment she realized she had to quit completely because that was the first time her son had ever been around her when that happened and when she had been drinking. So that was the end of her alcohol addiction. It's a slow road to recovery, but she, she says, you never say never to a few things, but alcohol is on that list. Selma talked about going to therapy before sitting down to write Mean Baby to help process all of her trauma before sharing it with the world. But she also talked about what she wanted this book to do, and it's so sweet. 
the most important thing for her was that she was writing it for her son. Her son's 10 years old. And so she wants him to have kind of her version, her telling of these life stories that have impacted their lives. Secondly, she would love for people who have experienced addiction, who've experienced any sort of trauma to maybe get something out of it or to recognize their pain wherever they are in their journey and healing. Everyone, Selma's book, Mean Baby, is available May 17th, and the latest issue of People with Selma's interview hits stands Friday. Kara, thank you so much for taking us into it. Thank you. The ongoing legal battle between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard may be taking this week off, but we're not. With the trial resuming next week, we sit down with a legal expert to talk about which side seems to be winning so far and what we can expect to see going forward. But first, what you watching? (laughs) There's a lot of TV news out there today, and right after the break, we check in on the biggest stories coming out of the small screen. Stay with us. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We are back, and we are going to get into news coming out of the world of TV in a little segment we like to call Whatcha Watching." Hold on to your earbuds for this bombshell. There was drama on set during the Real Housewives of New Jersey reunion. (laughs) I know, I know. It it knocked the wind out of me, too. But Joe Gorga stormed off the stage following a fight with his sister, Housewives veteran Teresa Giudice. Teresa claimed her brother was, quote, like a housewife because he was too involved with all of the women's drama and then called him, quote, a bitch boy. Teresa followed him backstage to try and work things out, but believe it or not, it led to more yelling and more drama. Even host Andy Cohen came backstage to mediate the feud. I would never put you down, and you know that. You There's did something wrong twice with you. tonight. No, I well, don't. Den- he's telling you how he feels. Okay, tell me so which part. So you should listen. Okay. For eleven years, I've been trying to talk to you. Okay. I want to have a relationship with you. I love you. But you've said some nasty things tonight. Sorry. Yikes. Moving on to a show known for a completely different type of drama, we are just a few weeks away from the series finale of NBC's This Is Us. Mandy Moore, who plays the show's beloved matriarch, was on The Tonight Show last night, where she opened up about how emotionally draining the end of the show is. I will tell you that the penultimate episode, um, which airs in like a week, I threw up after I read it. Oh, Moore went on to say, I simultaneously have to say goodbye to the character, to my family and friends on set, and this character's also coincidentally saying goodbye as well. So there was a lot wrapped up in it, but I still think that like you might need a day off from work. So it ends like it began, I guess. Ugh, wow. If one of the stars of the show can't handle all of the emotion and drama, how are we supposed to cope? I'm getting my tissues ready. And our last bit of drama is coming from Broadway. Actor Jesse Williams is best known for his role as Dr. Jackson Avery on Grey's Anatomy. But he's in the news this week for a completely different kind of 
Anatomy. On Monday, Williams was nominated for a Tony Award for his starring role as a gay baseball player in the revival of the Richard Greenberg play, Take Me Out. Much of the play takes place in a locker room, and the actors are completely nude during a shower scene. While an audience member snuck a video of Williams in that full frontal shower scene, posted it to the internet, and well, the internet did what it does. Now, the Actors' Equity Association released a statement denouncing the video and said that the person who filmed the actors on stage did so without their consent. The audience's phones were supposed to be locked away during the show, you guys. Actors' Equity condemned the audience member for, quote, explicitly violating the theater's prohibition on recording and distribution and stated the act was, quote, both sexual harassment and an appalling breach of consent. It is a violation that impedes our collective ability to tell stories with boldness and bravery. Now, in the midst of all this, Williams popped in to watch what happens live, where he discussed the buzz around the nudity involved in his latest role, saying, it's a body. Once you see it, you realize it's whatever. He added, I just have to make it not that big of a deal. The Johnny Depp defamation trial, as you all well know, is something that has been taking over the entertainment news feeds. The trial is on break this week, which has really given everyone a chance to process what we have heard so far. Like so many people, I have so many questions about what it all means legally. There have been just a lot of wild revelations and and so much maneuvering on both sides of this case. So I wanted to get some of those burning questions in our heads answered from a legal perspective. Joining me now is Daniel Guttenplan, a partner at Einstein Fam and Glass, who has been working with people on legal analysis of the trial. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Janine. Good to be here. Let's start with disclosure. Both sides here seem to be sharing just intimate details like the alleged incident involving Amber Heard defecating in bed or the Johnny Depp detailing his drug detox minute by minute. How does this level of honesty, disclosure, make a difference in a defamation case? In any defamation case, the key is credibility. And for a plaintiff to win a defamation case here, Mr. Depp, he has to prove that the statements at issue were false. And so he has to attack Ms. Hurd's credibility, plain and simple. So we've got the defamation case where what he's trying to do is poke holes in her story and create the appearance that she's not telling the truth. And he wants the jurors to believe that if she can embellish facts, if she can lie about certain instances, then the entire testimony is polluted and they shouldn't be believing it. Now, with respect to Mr. Depp's own drug use and his own direct testimony, getting out in front of that sort of stuff, that was going to see the light of day. And so Mm -hmm. his legal team, they did what they should have done and they got out in front of it. They tried to diffuse the situation to the best that they could and they tried to make him seem sympathetic and explain why he went to drugs, hoping that the jurors might be able to explain that and understand it and wouldn't be biased against him simply because he has a history of drug abuse. There have been several psychiatrists on the stand. Both the plaintiff and the defense have hired their own experts to assess Ms. Heard, and both of them have come up with completely conflicting diagnoses. So why is this an important strategy for the lawyers? And, and what does it mean when two experts, experts, have a completely different opinion on their analysis of a person who's up on the stand? 
Yeah, it's it's very common, generally speaking, for experts on either side of a lawsuit to have differing opinions. Frankly, experts get paid by the hour. They know where their bread is buttered. And if, for instance, Mr. Depp's expert that he had hired were rendering an opinion that weren't favorable to him, he wouldn't be putting that expert on the stand and vice versa. So the fact that the experts have different opinions isn't necessarily anything novel. The jurors are tasked with deciding which story they believe, who they think was, which expert they think was the most credible, and which path they want to follow. I'm just wondering how expensive, if we could paint the picture, is this trial looking to be? But also, like, is this going to warrant any kind of actual financial gain, all things considered? From Ms. Hurd's perspective, she's the defendant. She's defending herself. She has to defend against the claim. And so she has to put up a fight. Johnny Depp is the one who obviously is the plaintiff. He's pursuing the claims, and he's the one who is chosen to take this thing all the way to trial. And I can't tell you exactly how much it's costing, but it's very likely in the millions uh, in terms of legal fees and experts and everything that went on through the life cycle of the case. But $50 million is a whole lot of money. But I think the case is bigger than that. I think it's a case and a war on public opinion. And from Johnny's perspective, the Washington Post article at issue came out. Shortly thereafter, he was dropped from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. His reputation and his career has been irreparably tarnished because of this, these allegations. And so as much as he'd like to go get money in that pot of gold at the end of the lawsuit, I think he also has been taking this case all the way because he's trying to regain his image in the court of public opinion. And so what you're seeing day to day in the trial in terms of the dirty laundry that's being aired, I think that's why. It doesn't necessarily bear on the defamation case so much, but it bears on the public's opinion of him. Well, last question. What are you thinking? What, like, where, where are you on this as a lawyer, as a legal expert? Where are the chips falling? Every defamation plaintiff has a difficult case to prove for several reasons. One, the statement at issue needs to be factual in nature. It can't be an, an opinion. Two, if the statement is true, that's an absolute defense. So here we've got a Washington Post article that doesn't mention Johnny Depp, that doesn't mention any specific instances where Ms. Hurd simply claims generally to be a victim of abuse. I think it's reasonable, and I think the jurors will probably reach the conclusion that that article was talking about Mr. Depp. But for Mr. Depp to win his legal case, especially after Ms. Hurd's direct testimony, which outlined several different events and a couple of them that had other bystander third-party witnesses. And so he would, in essence, have to prove that every single one of those events that Ms. Hurd outlined didn't happen or didn't happen the way that she said it happened, which, you know, to me is a very difficult thing to prove. Of course, he's the plaintiff, so he carries the burden of proof. He has to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, which means more than 50% that he should win his case. And I think it's going to be tough for him to carry that burden. That said, there's two wars going on here. There's the defamation claim and the public opinion war. And from what I'm reading in the public, from some of the articles that are getting published, from what I see on social media, uh, I think he's accomplished a lot, of, a lot of what he probably set out to do in that world here. Dan, thank you so, so much for just going through it all and answering so many of these questions. Of course, anytime. 
It's that time of year where students of all ages are cramming for finals and preparing to take that next step in life. I myself have a friend graduating from med school today, like right now. Go, Dr. Ine. Just from talking to her, I know it's very easy to get caught up in the judgment and the stress when it comes to getting the best grades, which is why I think we could all benefit from hearing these words of wisdom that a teacher who goes by Miss P on social media had to say to her students. Students. I think it's just a little something to make you smile. Do not stress yourself over grades. Grades don't define you. You could fail everything and be the smartest person in the room. You could fail out of school and be the most successful person. You can also get 100s all throughout school and be the least successful person in the room. Grades do not define your success. That's exactly right. All of you students and parents out there, this is a friendly reminder that getting good grades is nice, but it's not everything. Good luck to all of the hardworking students and and soon-to-be grads out there as you wrap up the school year. And thank you all for listening today. I am going to be out tomorrow for my birthday. Go me. It's my birthday almost, (laughs) but I'm leaving you in very capable hands of our good friend, Nigel Smith. So be sure to tune in and show Nigel some love on tomorrow's episode of People Every Day.